Before our reading this morning, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and then move all the way over to the very last part of verse 11. The message this morning will be focused on verse 1, verse 4, and verse 11b, the last part of verse 11, actually one little sentence, the very last sentence of of chapter 1 in our Bibles. So follow with me in your text, if you would, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and then 11b. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the twentieth year, while I, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then... The following verses, verses 5 through 11, we have here conveyed to us the prayer of Nehemiah, which seems to be something of a summation of his prayers that he offered over the next several months. Then the very last part of verse 11, the last part of chapter 1 in our Bibles, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Well, there are some things that we can benefit from the man Nehemiah, and I trust as we look at this man that we realize that Again, there are some parallels to our lives, to make application to our lives from such a man. You know, that God sovereignly works in history through people, through individuals, through groups, as He chooses. And we see a man here, Nehemiah, raised from apparent obscurity. uh, Comes from just reading along from apparently nowhere in the grand scheme of things. And yet he's a man that God uses greatly at this point of history, to minister to His own people. And so what I want to ask us to do as we consider the text this morning is just to remember that, that God is one who works through His people and that likewise we trust it and to recognize that God's hands at work in our lives, in the events of our lives individually, but also in our lives as a church family, corporately. So what are the truths that we can see in the life of Nehemiah that help us see God working here and then make those applications to us? Well, first of all, we see that Nehemiah was a man who was silently prepared. Nehemiah was a man who was silently prepared. Let me ask you something. What do you know about the background of Nehemiah? We all know about the same, don't we? We don't know a lot about this man. All we know is that we come to, and if we again, if we come to the original works, we have the book Ezra, which Nehemiah was a part of. You come to this part in the book of Ezra and broken up for us. There's the words of Nehemiah, the words of the works of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Well, there's something we know. We know his father's name, Hakaliah. We also know he has a brother. Verse two, Hanani, one of my brothers. Now, the word brother can be translated can mean a lot of different things in the Hebrew. It can mean someone of Jewish blood. It can mean someone who's related distantly. But it seems that this is actually a blood, physical brother of Nehemiah. So that's about all we know about him. So the silence about 
Nehemiah is really something that speaks volumes to us. Because Nehemiah is a man who comes up, he has no known important links in Jewish history. As far as we know, there is no link to the Levitical priesthood. When Ezra comes, Ezra is a man, if we were to spend time back there, Ezra was a man who was raised up, a man who was taught in the laws of God. A man who, who, when he returned to Jerusalem, his responsibility was teaching people the law of God. A man trained for that. We have no knowledge that Nehemiah was tied to the Levitical priesthood in any manner. There's no mention of Nehemiah being tied into the line of David. Is this the... Is this someone else in the in the Davidic line that's been raised up here? No. So in one sense, we look, he doesn't have any reason to, to be a man of any importance. He doesn't have the priestly connections. He doesn't have the, the royal connections. He's not the fulfillment of any great prophecy. You know, Cyrus, the one who issued the decree that the Jews could return back to Jerusalem. Cyrus, as a pagan king, was at least one who was fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling the promises of God. Nehemiah comes and we have no fulfillment of prophecy and Nehemiah being raised up. So how is it that this obscure figure becomes so significant at this point in time? Well, it has nothing to do with who he is by lineage. You know, there's no great record of achievement to advance himself before others. What did Nehemiah do before this so that other people would would take heed and follow after him? Nothing that we know of. You know, he doesn't have the great track record of being a, a great leader. He becomes significant, though. He becomes significant in Jewish and in biblical and in redemptive history because of what he does once the opportunity arises. He becomes significant because of what he does when he takes, when he sees the opportunity arise before him. A very simple question that he asked to his brother, how are the, how's the work in Jerusalem? There have been those who have gone back over a period of 90 years. How's the work in Jerusalem? And his brother comes back to report, it's not well. The walls are down. The people are in distress are in distress, in great distress, and reproach. It's not, a, it's not a pretty picture. It's not a good story. Yet it's a simple question that he says before his brother that sets Nehemiah here in a life-changing direction. It alters his life. It becomes completely different here. One of the uh, commentaries I was reading says this about it. It says that Nehemiah was a leader in a national a cultural and a religious crisis who emerged not by birth and only secondarily by official appointment because he was appointed to go back by the king, we'll see in chapter 2, but rather by challenge and response. In the midst of the crisis itself, here we can trace the voluntary assumption of responsibility and initiative in the midst of a social crisis by an individual who God called and equipped for leadership. Did you hear that? It's the voluntary assumption of responsibility and the initiative in the midst of a crisis. To thrust him forth. Granted, God has called him. God has prepared him and equipped him. Nehemiah emerged from the, from the 
indignities of an exiled people to save his nation, its culture, and its religion in a perilous time. Nehemiah created his own crisis by the way in which he grappled responsibly with a, situa- with a situation the seriousness of which others either did not recognize or were content to evade. He created his crisis because he saw a situation that he could not evade it. He would not evade it. And others who either didn't recognize the seriousness of it or they were content to evade. So Nehemiah, he perceived the crisis and he was moved to prayer and then to action. You know, he wasn't concerned with his fitness. He, wasn't, he didn't look back at his own pedigree and say, you know, am I the man for this? He didn't look back on his own experience and say, am I the man for this crisis in this day? He simply sees the crisis of the day and he's moved forward because he's concerned with the glory of God. There is his passion. There is his heart. You know, this, this idea, this spirit that we find here in Nehemiah is very close, closely paralleled in a very familiar story in the Old Testament. That's the story of David. When David went out under the, the direction of his father to check on his brothers who were in battle. And David goes there. And who's there? Here's Goliath. Goliath who is, is mocking the people of God. And what does David do? Does David go to King Saul and say, This is your job, buddy. Get out there and do it. These are the people of God. Now go out there in boldness. So what does he do? He is so moved by the crisis of the situation and by the reproach of the people of God and the loss of the glory of God that David sees the opportunity and he says, I'm going. I'm going to take this opportunity. He doesn't rebuke the king. He doesn't say, all right, king, I have the gift of discernment. This is your calling. You're the leader. You go. He is a man who is so moved by the crises that the name of God is being mocked that he's moved to action. Now, there are times, I don't want to misrepresent this, there are times when it's, caught, when it's correct and right to call properly ordained leaders to their task. Now, there's a time as your pastor, you know, if I were to get out of line, there's a time to say to me, Brother Randy, this is your calling. This is your task. This is your duty. And I pray for grace that if or when that should ever happen, I can say, by, by, by George, you're right. I receive that. But there are also times that God so moves upon the hearts of His people, upon the hearts of individuals, or upon the hearts of groups of people. So moves upon them that they are compelled to go forward. They cannot be stopped. And they are, in fact, the means that God has ordained. They must go forth and they will not be stopped. And again, it's driven by a motivation for the glory of God. You know, the task of advancing God's kingdom is for all of God's people. Again, there are some times when we, we recognize we have properly ordained people to do tasks. The role of deacons in churches. Men who are called to fulfill certain roles. But there are also those times that we, as we see the crises, as we see the need that we need to be willing to raise up and say, this is something that, that I want to grab. This is something I want to seize for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God because I am part of the kingdom of God to allow the Spirit of God to move in our hearts over issues or matters that we can address and to do it. To simply be willing to rise up. 
You know, there are distinctions in calling, yes. But at the same time, we are all, and my, ta- my task as a minister, as a pastor to you, is to equip you for the gift of ministry, for the work of ministry. So to be willing to allow God to work in our lives in, in somewhat unexpected ways, rather than coming to God with all these restrictions, God, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, you know, look for something, oh, I can do this. But we wouldn't be let God surprise us. And what he does in and through us. I was reminded just as we read this, just reminded of of the uh, the prophet Amos. You know, prophet, the prophet Amos, he was a man who raised up and in through his book in Amos chapter seven, he he says He says, I'm not a prophet. Nor am I the son of a prophet. He says, I'm a person who who's a herdsman. And I grow Sycamore figs. But you read through the book of Amos and you, you see a man who speaks boldly the message of God. He's not a prophet. You know, they had, you remember back in the times of Elijah and those guys, they had what they call the school of the prophets. Men who were being trained as prophets of God, spokesmen for God. Amos didn't go to school, he came out of the field. Yet he was used mildly for the work of God. A man who is Nehemiah here, a man who is silently prepared. We don't have here a history of a man who is who was raised in the right place, raised in the right way, raised in the right family. We just seem to have a man that, that appears almost out of nowhere. And yet because of what he does, and remember, we're reading this thing after the fact. We know the success, but he, he came forth boldly with no guarantee of success. You know, he didn't have a script to follow. He said, all right, this happens next. I'm going to go here. And God's, you know, he's not reading the book of Nehemiah like we are. It's events. It's, it's life for him. It is a man who's moved for the glory of God. And how that's all intertwined into to the condition of the people of God there. And what an opportunity we, we give to God. We just simply say, Lord, I want to be available to you for whatever you have for me. I don't want to limit that. You know, I'm I'm the first person who can, who can look at myself and say, you know, what's the son of a bluegrass musician think he's doing pastoring the church? You know? <laughs> My granddad was a moonshine. He's a coal miner too, but he's had moonshines up here. <laughs> he wasn't just a moonshiner, but that was part of it. I think sometimes, you know, what? What in the world do I think I'm... Then I turn on my radio and I can hear somebody like Alistair Begg on the radio or Chuck Swindoll and hear these guys speak and they're so eloquent and it's so good and I say, I'm like, oh Lord, what, what am I doing? I just need to close my mouth. Let's just pipe some of these guys in on Sunday morning here. And just allow God to use us as He will. He might surprise you. He may surprise you. Secondly, we see that Nehemiah was a man who was sovereignly placed. And in 11, verse 11, the part of the verse I read, the very end of this verse, very brief. A very brief autobiographical note here from Nehemiah. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, that doesn't sound like it's very dramatic. But as others who have studied the position of cupbearer and in Nehemiah's time, they give us some real insights here. One says that this was a lucrative position to be raised to a position of a royal cupbearer. It says to the Western and modern readers, 
That may sound a rather unimportant position, not unlike that of a butler among our aristocracy. But we're wrong in so thinking. One writer says it's an office which is one of the most honorable and confidential at the court and is referred to by ancient writers as one of great influence. Another writer says that when he makes he speaks of Nehemiah as the cupbearer, that the royal cupbearers in antiquity were expected to be convivial and tactful companions to the king. Being much in the king's confidence, they could thus wield considerable influence by way of informal counsel and discussion. And many times the office of cupbearer would be combined with other important offices. It's, an office, it's called an officer of high rank at the ancient or oriental courts with the primary duty to serve the wine at the king's table. But he was to be thoroughly trustworthy to hold this position. His confidential relations with the king often endeared him to his sovereign and also gave him a position of great influence. Nehemiah was held in high esteem, the records show. Also, we glean from reading later through the book of Nehemiah that he was his position was one of that was very lucrative. His financial ability, many of the things that, were, that Nehemiah did, did, he financed himself. His financial ability would indicate that the office was a very lucrative position. So, you know, we need to think of as more than just a man who stands by the king and drinks his wine before the king does so he doesn't get poisoned. He had to be trustworthy. But it was because of his position, he was one who was, who was many times held into the confidence of the king, of great influence to the king. And we see later just some of the influence that, that Nehemiah has as he goes to King Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah was a man of considerable status. Because of that, he was a man who could ignore the problems of distant Jerusalem. I mean, let's face it, what has what's going on over there have to do with me here? He's well provided for. He could consider his position as too important to be abandoned. I have more of an opportunity for influence here as the cupbearer to the king than I could ever hope to accomplish there in Jerusalem. So he had every, every reason to be uninvolved with the events of Jerusalem. But his choice was much like that we see in the life of Esther, was it not? When Esther was raised up to be placed as the queen. And actually a time period very close to this. And realizing that her position was perhaps for the very purpose of bringing deliverance to her people. There were great risk for both of them. Great risk for Esther to go into the presence of the king when she had not been called. You don't go into the presence of the king if you've not been called by him first. The risk of death. And Nehemiah, you don't go and make a request like this to the king. You're supposed to be joyful. We'll find here in the first part of chapter 2, he comes and he's, he's sad in the presence of the king. That's risky. That's risky. There's no guarantee that there will be success. There's no guarantee of deliverance. He's prayed here in chapter 1, which we'll look at the prayer next week. He's prayed that God would give him compassion before the king, the very last part of verse 11. But he doesn't know that's going to happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God can deliver us from the fire, but He may not. There's no guarantees here. There's no guarantee of success for Esther, no guarantee of success for Nehemiah. 
Yet they recognize their positions as God's providential working for the glory of His name and for His kingdom, not for their own personal convenience and comfort. They see themselves as being sovereignly placed where they are. Their places of influence, their places of of position by the sovereign, gracious hand of God for His purposes. Now consider our lives. Consider the sphere of influence that we have. Say, well, I don't have a very big sphere of influence. You have a family? I don't have to look outside the, the walls of my home to see a sphere of influence. Children. Spouses, in-laws, co-workers, social circles, people that you just run around with, you have contact with, a sphere of influence. Let me encourage you, as you you consider that, whatever the, the sphere of influence, the people that are in your life, that God has sovereignly placed in your life, let me encourage you to look at that with, a, with this question in mind. How can I best, how can I best use this position, whatever position it is, in your home, in your workplace, how can I best use this position to advance the kingdom of God? And that's a lifetime question. Wherever you are, how can I best advance the place that God has sovereignly placed me in the sphere of influence that I have with the people I rub shoulders with, the people in my family? How can I best, how can I best use this position to advance the kingdom of God? To be willing to speak of spiritual matters, which I trust is commonplace in our homes but to be more bold in such conversations in the workplace. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you need to make every, every contact with every individual a soul-winning opportunity. But I am saying this, that there's a freedom that we have in just expressing the goodness of God to us. You know, that while other people think about being lucky or whatever, that we, that we can speak freely of God has blessed. God has been good. And not just to make pretend conversation, but because we recognize in our own hearts that God is working in our lives. God has blessed. God has been gracious. God has been good. That we speak freely of those things because they're the outflow of our heart. (coughs) Let this be our conversation that we speak of, of answered prayer. That we speak of the benefits that we experience of Christian fellowship, of being part of the body of Christ. Listen, we live in a world of people that are alienated from, from one another. There's not closeness. As the people of God, as the body of Christ, that we can, can demonstrate and experience a unity and a closeness that's foreign to the mindset of the non-believer. They can't grasp that. I mean, what closer union can, a, can people have than the fact that they are united in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? And to speak of those things. You know, I just had to ask myself when I was in this, why are we so content? Why are we so content that our speech so often be so secular? That we speak just like non-believers. And I'm not talking about foul language. I'm just talking about our... Our, our conversation is so often devoid of mentioning God. So often devoid of mentioning Christ and His goodness and His glory, His grace. Why are we so content that our, our conversations be so secular? 
boy, just to see that wherever we are, that where God has placed us, that it's an opportunity to, to advance the kingdom of God. Lord, how can I best do that? I understand you may be in some places where you have some restrictions. I understand that. And I'm not saying go out there and get yourself fired over it. But I'm saying, oh God, how can I best? Just in personal conversations with, with co-workers. How can I best use this position where you've placed me to advance the kingdom of God? Because I believe that I'm not accidentally placed. I believe I've been sovereignly, providentially placed where I am into the lives of the people that I touch every day. And Nehemiah was also one who was spiritually passionate. Verse 4. It came about that when I heard these words, verse 4, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, something of the character of Nehemiah is revealed to us here in verse 4. He's a man who is moved deeply by the reports of distress and reproach upon the people of God in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's the people of God. It's God's people. And it's God's name who is at stake here. So there's more here than just a sense of sorrow which is there. As he says in verse 4, I heard these words and I, I sat down and I wept and I mourned. Truly, there's the sense of sorrow. But he goes beyond that more than a sorrow, but also a spiritual response. A response of, of fasting and a response of praying. In other words, these, these matters that deal with the heart that are of a spiritual nature, that they, they compel a man to consider God and to go before the throne of God. You see, the crisis here, the crisis here does not make Nehemiah a man of prayer. The crisis demonstrates to us that he was a man of prayer. You go through the book of Nehemiah, which we're going to be doing, and, and there's numerous occasions through this book. There'll just be very quickly, there'll be a very brief reference. Chapter 2, verse 4, for example. The king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then verse 5, and I said to the king, let me tell you something. This wasn't a long prayer. I prayed to the God of heaven. Lord help. And I said to the king, and numerous times through the book of Nehemiah, you see he's a man of prayer. He's quick to go to the throne of grace, quick to recognize, God, I need you in this. And so as he hears of the crisis back in Jerusalem, that's where he's moved to. Why? Because he's a man who of spiritual passion. He's a man who's concerned with the glory of God and he recognizes that as goes the city of Jerusalem, so goes the name of God to the world. And there's a reproach upon the name of God because God's promise was not that He would merely bring people back. And that's happened. There have been groups that have returned to Jerusalem over a period of 90 years preceding this day. But the promise of God was more than that. That The, the promise of God was that the city would be reestablished. The place of worship reestablished. And here, 90 years later, after the first group had returned, it's still a reproach. It's the glory of God that's at issue here. So man, he's a man here that's spiritually passionate about the things of God. He weeps for the status of the people of Jerusalem because it's ultimately a reflection on and a reproach against the character of God. So he goes where he knows best, the throne of grace. 
I hope we know that place. I hope the, the throne of grace is the place that we become very familiar with and we just become so accustomed to it, so familiar with it that we are quickly, as Nehemiah was as on so many accounts, that we're just quickly, even if just in what we call the ejaculatory prayer, oh God, help. Please help. Just a moment's prayer. I need you, God. To know that that's the place where, where our, we're driven by our, by our impulses. By habit, we're compelled to go to the throne of grace. Christ's driven prayer is important. And I'm thankful that we can go to God in the crisis. But Christ's driven prayer should not be the major context of prayer for us. That when we're in the crisis, we can go to the throne of grace with confidence and assurance because we've been there so many times before prior to the crisis. Prayers need to be impassioned about the things of God because our hearts are to be inflamed for His glory. For the glory of God. And too often our words are empty, our eyes are dry, and our hearts are cold. You know, how many times do we pray with tears? No, I'm not talking about just things that affect family and children and spouses. I mean, those obviously move us to tears. But how about something just is just simply, oh God, oh God, you're not receiving anything of the glory you deserve here. And that breaks our hearts. To be spiritually impassioned. To pray with tears about things of God. Where are the tears of reproach for God's name? Well, Nehemiah was a man spiritually passionate. But he's not that much different from us. You know, what keeps us from being like this? Distractions, priorities, choices. Now, believing that God has prepared us for whatever work He desires to accomplish through us. To believe that God has sovereignly placed us in a sphere of influence that He desires for us. And to be those, by the grace of God, who would be spiritually passionate. It comes from being a person who is accustomed to being with God. To being accustomed to walking in fellowship with God. You walk in fellowship with God, you'll have His heart. We'll be stirred. We'll be in We'll be passionate about those things that affect Him if we're walking with Him. May God work graciously and kindly in our hearts to accomplish that, that we'd be those who are spiritually passionate.